Och så har vi... Och så får vi jobba var och en på sitt sätt. Och vi har ett gemensamt ansvar. Och vi kan tillsammans säga Frie Nelson Mandela. Upphev undantagstillståndet. Avskaffa apartheid. Ge frihet åt Afrika. Sweden, 1986. The voice you're hearing is Olof Palma, the social democratic prime minister of Sweden. Here, he's addressing a fundraiser for the African National Congress, a major resistance movement that fought against white minority rule in South Africa. Palma was a key figure in the struggle against apartheid, sending millions of dollars to the ANC throughout his career, and doing so in the open, without apology. A few months after this speech, Olaf Palma would be shot dead on a main street of Stockholm. The murder of the Prime Minister went unsolved for 34 years until June of 2020, when Swedish investigators announced that a lone gunman named Stig Engström was most likely the killer. The case is now closed. But many people in Sweden aren't satisfied with the results of the investigation. Many people believe that Olaf Palma's determined struggle against apartheid in South Africa was linked to his assassination. And I think they're right. This is a conspiracy you can believe in. In this episode, we're talking about an assassination. The murder of Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palma went officially unsolved for 34 years, and in my opinion, it still is unsolved. The killing is often compared to the Kennedy assassination, a strange, unexpected murder of a world leader out in the open on a main thoroughfare with a lone suspect taken into custody and dozens of conspiracy theories about what really happened. But when it comes to Palma, I am one of those conspiracy theorists, and as you'll learn, I'm far from alone, and in the company of probably most people who know anything about the Olaf Palma murder. Like I said in the last episode, I'm normally skeptical of most conspiracy theories. I promise you, I'm not a crank. But it is true that powerful people do sometimes conspire to break the law, and that they do sometimes get away with it. Now in this case, Olaf Palma made a long list of very powerful enemies. He was a controversial figure, a charismatic, democratic socialist who took on everyone from big business to foreign right-wing regimes. To many on the left in Sweden, he was the bright future of their social democratic party. Much of what we in America think of when we think about Sweden, an egalitarian society, a robust welfare state, powerful trade unions, that's partly thanks to Olaf Palma. But his political influence went beyond Sweden itself. He was an early opponent of the Vietnam War, a supporter of Chilean Socialist President Salvador Allende, and one of the most outspoken leaders against apartheid in the Western world. These principled stances meant that Olaf Palma ended up on a lot of people's enemy list, both at home and abroad. 
Conspiracy theorists have long suspected neo-fascist elements in the Swedish police or South African hitmen to be responsible for the murder. But the only people that prosecutors ever really officially accused of the crime were lone shooters with unclear motives. Today, we'll examine those suspects as well as the possibility of an organized conspiracy to murder Olaf Palma. I should point out at the top, I'm not an expert, so don't take what I say here as gospel. And I'm also going to be saying a lot of names that are either in Swedish or Afrikaans, languages I don't speak a word of. So if I get those wrong, I apologize in advance. Let's start out with what we know about the day Olaf Palma was shot, February 28, 1986. This day was as normal as any other day for Olaf Palma. He woke up, he went to the gym, he ran errands, he went to work. Like most heads of government, he often had bodyguards accompanying him wherever he went. But when he arrived at his office, he dismissed them. This wasn't unusual for Palma. Perhaps because of his upper-class background, he liked to cultivate an image of being a simple man of the people. He lived in a Stockholm apartment, and was known to go on strolls throughout the city unaccompanied by guards. What was unusual that day, however, was Olaf Palma's mood. Many of his colleagues noted that the usually polite and collected Palma was agitated and in a bad temper. No one has ever gotten to the bottom of what exactly was bothering him that day. Although, I suspect he was in a foul mood over meetings with Iraqi diplomats. Palma was the UN negotiator for the Iran-Iraq War. A grueling task. Interesting bit of trivia. The diplomat that Palma met with that day was Mohammed Saeed al-Sahaf, better known to Americans old enough to remember the Iraq War as Baghdad Bob, the Minister of Information for Saddam Hussein's government. One remark Palma made does stand out, however. When a journalist asked him to pose for a photograph near a window, he refused, saying, You never know what could be waiting for me out there. Later that evening, Olaf returned to his apartment where he met his wife, Lisbeth Palma. Now, Lisbeth was an accomplished psychologist and had been the spouse of the Prime Minister for over a decade, but she wasn't known to seek publicity and, from what I read, seemed to enjoy a modest, normal life as much as her husband did. That evening... They planned to meet their son, Martin, and his girlfriend for a movie at the Grand Cinema Movie Theater. They left the house at about 8.35 p.m. and took the subway, again, without bodyguards, about a mile and a half to the movie theater. They met their son and his girlfriend at the Grand Cinema to watch a Swedish comedy called The Brothers Mozart. At around 11.15 p.m., the party is leaving the theater lobby when Martin suggests they stop for a cup of tea. Olaf declines and insists on walking back to their apartment with Lisbeth. Martin and his girlfriend split off, and Olaf and Lisbeth head home, down the Sveavagen, a major street in Stockholm. It's a chilly night, with a light dusting of snow, but since this is a major thoroughfare, there are a few people around to see what happens next. A witness who is in a parked car across the street probably got the best view. Lisbeth and Olaf are approaching an art supply store on the corner of Sveavagen and Tunnelgatten streets. A few minutes before they arrive, the witness sees a tall man in a dark overcoat rush up to the door of the art store, apparently waiting for someone. As Olaf and Lisbeth walk past at 11.21 p.m., the man in the overcoat goes up to them, grabs Olaf Palma by the shoulder, 
draws a large handgun, and fires two shots into his back. Olaf falls to the pavement, dead. The killer looks at his body for a moment, holsters his gun, and flees down Tunnelgotten Street. Something important about the killer's escape route. Tunnelgotten is a pedestrian street that, as the name implies, has a tunnel that goes under a small hill. It also has a flight of 89 steps that connect it to the street at the top of the hill. At this time of night, the tunnel is locked, so the killer has to sprint up 89 concrete stairs in the snow. Not an easy task, but it means a car can't follow wherever he's going. Another witness sees the gunman bound up the steps with ease, then follows him some distance away. He gets a brief glimpse of the man in the overcoat, darting behind a parked car far ahead. Then nothing. It's the last that anyone has seen of Olaf Palma's killer for certain. Lisbeth had apparently not seen much of the killer at all. According to her interview with police after the shooting, she was walking, arms locked with her husband, when she heard what she imagined were firecrackers behind them. She turned to Olaf to make a comment about the firecrackers being surprisingly loud, but to her horror, she found him to be bleeding out of his mouth and falling onto the sidewalk, dragging her down with him. She heard another bang and felt a pain in her back. It turns out she was grazed by a bullet herself, but she barely saw the shooter. She claimed it was a man about six feet tall with brown hair and a short blue parka. She gave no testimony about his face. The police response immediately after the murder has long been the source of controversy in Sweden. There's really no other way to put it. It was a disaster. First, a pedestrian who saw the murder immediately calls the Swedish equivalent of 911. He can't get a response. But luckily, a nearby taxi driver phones his dispatch station out in the suburbs. The dispatcher calls the Stockholm police, but the detective who answers the phone hangs up after 20 seconds, believing the caller is confused. This delayed police response by several minutes. Unfortunately, there was a police patrol near the route the assassin took. Had the police been more prompt, the killer probably would have been caught. Fortunately, another taxi driver three blocks away hears the alert about the shooting on his radio and flags down a police car. The police car speeds to the corner of Sveavägen and Tunnelgatten streets, arriving at 11.25 p.m., just a few minutes after the murder. An unoccupied ambulance that happens to be driving by also stops. After emergency services arrive, the Stockholm police fail to release an alert to all precincts for several hours. This means that police all over the region are totally unaware that the Prime Minister has been killed and that his murderer is at large. A witness who saw the killer flee approaches a nearby cop who fails to take any vital information down or follow up with her. Trains are still departing Stockholm and ferries are still leaving for Finland, allowing the killer ample opportunity to put himself far away from the crime scene. At headquarters, the police command center for serious crimes has its computers disconnected, and there's a shortage of radio and tech specialists to monitor the control room, delaying the alert and police response even more. By the time an all-points bulletin goes out at 2 a.m., it references two killers by mistake, not one. Now, a lot of people in Sweden did point to the police bungling the response to the shooting 
as possible evidence of foul play or conspiracy. I, however, am an American, and I cannot be shocked by the idea of police being too incompetent to solve a murder. But as we're about to learn, the mistakes didn't stop with the first night. The next day, Hans Holmer, the police commissioner for Stockholm, takes charge of the case. He had been away on vacation, but sped home in the middle of the night when he got word of the shooting. To the press, he appears to be on top of things. Holmer is charismatic, confident, and good at giving press conferences. He's not very good at much else. One of his most glaring mistakes in the coming weeks is releasing a composite image of what he thinks is the killer. This picture is called The Phantom in the newspapers. It's based on a sketch from an artist who happened to run into a man fleeing from the direction of the crime scene that night. The artist claimed that the phantom image didn't resemble the man she saw, who may not have even been the killer. Thousands of useless tips flooded in based on this composite image. The crime scene itself at this point has been horribly managed. Police are unable to locate the bullets from the murder weapon. Several days after the shooting, mourners and journalists visiting the scene of Olaf Palma's death happened to find them, although at this point the bullets are severely damaged. Police technicians at first believe the bullets were custom-made for an unusual murder weapon until gun dealers told them they were simply ammunition for a 357 Magnum. In a famous press conference, Commissioner Hans Holmer dangled two 357 Magnum pistols from his fingers, asking the public to give any information on owners of such weapons. He was flooded with hundreds of useless tips of a very common firearm. The selection of the first suspects went just as poorly. Now, I'd like to take a minute to talk about the people that the Swedish police actually arrested or accused of the crime, because not only is it an important part of the story, I think it's a good way to see what the police were looking for and what they failed to look for in the investigation. The first person questioned, and eventually arrested for the murder, was a 33-year-old teacher named Victor Gunnarsson. The case against him was largely based on hunches and circumstantial evidence. A detective believed that Gunnarsson had fled to a nearby theater after the shooting, much like Lee Harvey Oswald after the JFK assassination. Some teenagers had also seen Gunnarsson in a McDonald's near the crime scene at about 1 a.m., ranting about his hatred of Olaf Palma. In reality, Gunnarsson was an eccentric who happened to have an obsessive hatred of Olaf Palma, that night, he spent most of his evenings as he normally did, trying and failing to pick up women at the local cafe. Victor Gunnarsson's usual technique for talking to women was adopting a slick American alter ego named Vic Gunnison. He spent much of the evening speaking Swedish in an American accent, annoying two women with made-up stories about how he once bested Olaf Palma in a debate. After the women left, some young men at the bar talked to Vic for some entertainment until about 11 p.m. Victor then went to see Rocky IV, but at a different theater from the Palmas, and then stopped by the McDonald's at 1 a.m. to have a burger and rant about the Prime Minister. Gunnarsson's alibi would eventually check out. But over the course of two months, Stockholm police would rely on coaching unreliable witnesses to pick Gunnarsson out of a lineup. Victor was in the papers now, and it would look bad if the police got the wrong suspect right off the bat. They raided his apartment, 
expecting to uncover mountains of fascist propaganda, but mostly only found pamphlets connecting him to the regional Lyndon LaRouche organization. The LaRouche movement is far right, and they hated Olaf Palma, but it's also widely considered to be the home of harmless cranks, not hardened killers. By May, witnesses began to back up Victor Gunnarsson's alibi, and the case against him fell apart. Because of harassment he received as a suspect in the Prime Minister's murder, Gunnarsson would emigrate to North Carolina, where he would be shot dead by his girlfriend's jealous ex-fiancé. Now, if any of this sounds familiar to you, you might have seen the 2006 Forensic Files episode about Victor Gunnarsson. Now, for the next two years, the investigation was sidetracked again as police operated on a theory that the Kurdistan Workers' Party, that acronym is PKK in Kurdish, was responsible for the murder. I won't get too much into this, but it seems to be the only conspiracy theory that the police put any real effort into investigating, and there was very little evidence for it. Most witnesses who saw the assassin agreed it was a white, European-looking man, and there was no real motive that Kurdish groups had to kill Palma. Commissioner Hans Holmer seemed intent on getting any excuse to crack down on the PKK because of unrelated shootings they carried out against political enemies in Stockholm. Even after Holmer called off the inquest into the PKK, a government minister took his own secret investigation of the Kurdish party, which became a major scandal in Sweden. The next individual accused of the murder was not only arrested, but actually convicted of the crime before it was overturned on appeal. Christer Petterson was a career criminal, amphetamine addict, and a violent alcoholic. He was also well known among the criminal underworld of Stockholm because of his habit of robbing drug dealers with a large bayonet. In 1970, he used that bayonet to murder a man in an argument near the Tunnelgatan, just steps away from where Olaf Palma would be shot. Because of the proximity of the murder scene, Pedersen automatically showed up in a search of police records. He also happened to look a little bit like the Phantom, that composite image that Commissioner Hans Holmer relied on in the early stages of the investigation. He was taken in for questioning in December of 1988. The case against Pedersen was largely based on Lisbeth Palma picking him out of a police lineup and witnesses placing him at the Grand Theater at the time the Palmas were there. However, some of the witnesses were Christer's acquaintances from the criminal underworld. Many of them did not like him, or had grudges against him, or were heavily intoxicated that evening. Other witnesses that claimed to see him follow the Palmas down the street from the theater had changed their story, or suddenly remembered seeing him when suggested by the police. Now, Pedersen was spotted at a gambling den near the murder that evening, but by no means is it clear that he was at the scene when Olaf Palma was killed. In fact, one witness reported seeing him walking to his apartment in the suburbs at the time of the murder. The most damning piece of evidence against Pedersen for the jury at his trial was probably Lisbeth Palma selecting him out of a lineup. However, during her testimony, questions arose about how much the police nudged her to single out Pedersen as the killer. By her own admission, Lisbeth really never got a good look at the killer's face. And a comment that Lisbeth made when she chose Pedersen from the lineup, quote, it's evident who is the alcoholic, suggests that the police gave her physical characteristics of their preferred suspect to guide her. 
Nevertheless, the jury in Peterson's 1989 trial voted to convict him, but two judges in the case voted to acquit. Peterson would go on to appeal his conviction successfully the following year. Peterson was and still is a subject of much controversy in Sweden. He was an unpredictable, rather unlikable person who sought out media attention for years after his trial, sometimes making cryptic statements implying that he knew what the real killer was. Many people in Sweden still believe, as I once did too, that he murdered Olaf Palma. Like most of these suspects, the motive was never established. Pedersen apparently greatly admired Palma, although some believe Pedersen could have killed the Prime Minister because he mistook him for someone else. We will likely never get to the bottom of it, as Christer Pedersen died of complications from a drunken fall in 2004. The final lone suspect, investigated by Swedish police, was formally accused of the crime last month, a man named Stieg Engström. He's sometimes called Scandia Man because he was leaving the landmark Scandia Insurance Building at the time of the shooting, and depending on who you believe, was either a witness to or the perpetrator of Olaf Palma's murder. Of all the lone gunman theories, this one probably holds up best because, for one, we know Engstrom owned a 357 Magnum, and, well, we know he was actually there. What's more, Engstrom gave a ridiculous account of his own actions during the shooting to newspapers, and it was full of obvious lies. Engstrom told reporters that he took charge of the murder scene, and even attempted to resuscitate the fallen prime minister, then followed police up the tunnel gotten steps after the killer fled to give them important information about what the shooter looked like. According to Engstrom, he then doubled back to the Scandia building, only to learn that witnesses described the killer as a middle-aged man in a blue coat and a flat cap. This was a good description of Engstrom himself. Since he had also just taken the same route as the killer up the steps, he felt he needed to clear the air publicly that he was definitely not the assassin. None of his story was true, except the part where he was present when the crime occurred. Obviously, Engstrom's behavior is suspicious here. A good reason someone who matched the murderer's description would make up a story to clear any suspicion they might have done the crime was if they actually did it. The team who closed the case this year certainly believe so, as they singled out Engstrom as the most likely culprit. Martin Palma, Olaf's son who was at the movies with him that night, agrees. But it's important to note that the investigators admitted they did not have enough evidence to convict Engstrom, and any way they can't. He committed suicide 20 years ago. They just believe that it's likely he did it, and that he should have been arrested at the time. I agree his behavior was suspicious, but if it's true that Engstrom shot Palma, then ran up the tunnel gotten steps, then doubled back to return to the Scandia building, this escape route would take him in the opposite direction that witnesses saw the killer running. Remember, at least a few witnesses did see the gunman run a good distance away from the crime scene after he cleared the staircase. It's possible that Engstrom did shoot Palma, and then tried to plant an innocent explanation in the press about why he was just seen running up the tunnel gotten. It's also possible that he was just a little bit weird, 
His outfit did fit some descriptions of what the killer was wearing, but a blue coat and a flat cap doesn't seem like a very uncommon outfit for a middle-aged Swedish man in February in the 1980s. Maybe out of fear that he would be confused for the killer, he gave a very ill-advised interview to clear his name, and then just got carried away. Regardless, there doesn't seem to be much of a motive here. Engstrom did not like Olaf Palma's politics, but his wife insisted that he was no killer, and there is a big difference between not liking a politician and shooting them dead in the street. Now it's time we take a closer look into a culprit with a more obvious motive, one that Swedish authorities never fully investigated, apartheid South Africa. You might be wondering, what does the Prime Minister of Sweden have to do with South Africa? But during the 70s and 80s, the answer is quite a lot. At this time, South Africa was governed by a white supremacist national party that instituted the policy of apartheid, a system that Olaf Palma vociferously opposed his entire career. During the 1980s, the white minority supporters of apartheid viewed the system as under threat by liberal reformers, communists, black-led African nations, and especially domestic black liberation movements, such as the African National Congress. Today, we know the ANC as the ruling party of post-apartheid South Africa, or perhaps you know it as the party of Nelson Mandela. During Olaf Palma's time, the ANC was an illegal organization in its own country. Violent repression from the government even forced the ANC to develop an armed wing of their party and carry out guerrilla warfare against the apartheid state. Olaf Palma was an early and outspoken supporter of their struggle. He led the Social Democratic Party in adopting sanctions and disinvestment against South Africa in the 70s, and over the course of his career, sent hundreds of millions of dollars of aid to the ANC. He made no secret of his hatred for apartheid, and he acted on it. For many years, people in Sweden and South Africa suspected that that's what got him killed. In September of 1996, those suspicions appeared to be confirmed. A former South African police agent named Eugene de Kock was the first to publicly admit his country's role in Palma's assassination. De Kock was a high-ranking official in the South African police, the commander of a death squad headquarters known as Flockplas. Officers at Flockplas carried out numerous state terror campaigns, including bombing, torture, and assassination of anti-apartheid activists. That month, he was on trial for multiple charges of murder that he carried out there. At one point in his testimony, he confessed that the murder of Olaf Palma was directed by one of his colleagues in the intelligence service, a man named Craig Williamson. A week later, another former Flockplas operative named Dirk Coetze confirmed to the press that Craig Williamson was involved. I should note that Coetze was a government hitman who became a whistleblower as the apartheid regime was declining, and he is a controversial figure. However, one well-known South African investigative journalist did remark about Coetze, quote, There isn't anything he told us that wasn't true, and for that I will always respect him. Craig Williamson being accused by multiple high-ranking people in his own government of directing the killing strongly suggests to me that he was involved. And the police apparently agreed. 
Shortly after Eugene de Kolk's trial in 1996, Williamson was arrested at his home in Angola and questioned by Swedish authorities. A little bit about Williamson and why I suspect him. Craig Williamson was a high-level spy for the apartheid regime. He likely never directly killed anyone, but he did order multiple acts of state terror, including the bombing of the ANC offices in London and the mail bombing of prominent anti-apartheid activists and their family members. One of his victims was a woman named Ruth First, who also happened to be a close friend of Olaf Palma. Eugene de Kolk specifically claimed that Palma's killing was one of Williamson's projects under a campaign called Operation Longreach. This covert operation was designed to gather intelligence and silence critics of apartheid through a fake security company operating in countries with no South African embassy. Williamson was in charge of the Shell Company and was practically given free reign by the South African government to carry out Operation Longreach as he saw fit. Williamson was also a well-practiced deceiver. He got close to many of his targets by pretending to be an opponent of apartheid, joining ANC-affiliated groups, and sometimes even rising to leadership positions within them before turning on his former comrades. Allow me just a brief aside from the assassination for a minute, because there's something interesting I found in researching this that connects Williamson to a minor player in the first episode. In addition to state-sponsored terrorism, one of Craig Williamson's other projects as a South African agent was the International Freedom Foundation. The IFF was, to the public, just an anti-communist think tank that happened to be connected to prominent American conservatives such as Senator Jesse Helms and Congressman Bob Dornan. In reality, the International Freedom Foundation was a front group for the South African government and intended to spread propaganda worldwide in favor of apartheid and against the ANC. One of Williamson's projects funded through the IFF was a 1988 action movie starring Dolph Lundgren called Red Scorpion. The movie was filmed in Namibia, where the South African government was brutally suppressing an independence movement. South African military and police forces also consulted on set for Red Scorpion. The movie was crude Cold War propaganda for South African-backed rebels in the Angolan Civil War and was written and produced by Jack Abramoff. Abramoff, as it turns out, was a close business associate of Craig Williamson and a key lobbyist for the IFF in Washington. Let's turn back to the investigation. When police finally asked Craig Williamson about his role in the Prime Minister's murder, he flatly denied it. He even mocked the detective's questions about South African hitmen being sent to hide out in Sweden in a camper car. This was the going theory at the time, which was based on a tip to police from a Swedish reporter years earlier. It was true that beyond the accusations from de Kolk and Kotze, the police had little hard evidence to pin on Williamson or anyone from South Africa to the crime. And for whatever reason, they found Craig Williamson's denial convincing. The South African investigation seemed to go nowhere until the next year in 1997. The Swedish embassy in Mozambique received information about a local white South African man named Nigel Barnett, who claimed to have inside knowledge about Olaf Palma's murder. 
the Swedish police sent an agent to Mozambique to take Barnett in for questioning. What he found could potentially be an answer to who pulled the trigger on Palma. Nigel Barnett, which is probably not his real name, was definitely a South African spy and had worked in Mozambique for the South African government for over a decade. This would later be confirmed the next year as part of post-apartheid South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As it happened, Barnett also had been adopted by a Swedish mother, spoke fluent Swedish, and visited the country often, including at some point in 1986, the year that Palma was killed. He also possessed a 357 Magnum, the type of gun used in the assassination, and in his apartment, police found what appeared to be vacation photos in Sweden, including one picture of a camper van in the Swedish countryside. Nigel Barnett also knew and worked with Craig Williamson, and like Williamson, he denied any involvement in Olaf Palma's murder. He did, however, claim that he probably knew who did it, information that he kept to himself. Police in Mozambique ran forensic tests on the ammunition from his 357 Magnum, finding no match, although the ammo box they got from the crime scene shipped from Sweden did show signs of tampering. Police also couldn't prove Barnett was even in Sweden on the night of the murder, and so the case against Nigel Barnett was closed. Now, there have been other members of the South African intelligence community's cast of villains to come forward with claims that they knew who did it or to be accused of involvement with the conspiracy themselves. Men like Peter Castleton, a South African spy who pointed investigators in the direction of his former colleague, a man named Bertel Wedden. Wedden was a Swedish national with far-right politics who often worked with South African intelligence forces as a mercenary. He's lived in northern Cyprus since the early 1980s and to this day claims no involvement in Olaf Palma's murder. In fact, the South African conspiracy theory revolves around several men who all knew each other, worked together, and insisted one or all of their former colleagues were involved in killing Olaf Palma. But of course, they claimed that they themselves had nothing to do with it. A development in the Palma investigation that happened in the past few years may explain this. A Swedish diplomat named Guren Bjorkdal has been independently researching the Palma assassination for years. In 2015, he began to press his contacts in the former South African intelligence service to come clean with what really happened. Bjorkdal claimed that he earned a private meeting in Johannesburg with a former general of the intelligence service who divulged all the names of those responsible for killing the prime minister and that they were acting under orders from the South African government. He was told that these names could be made public as part of a deal with the Swedish government that included amnesty from prosecution. As we know now, such a deal for amnesty was never reached as the Swedish government closed the case last month on a lone gunman theory. It seems to me that the desire for amnesty is a common thread among all the South African spies who came forward with hints about the Palma assassination. There also seemed to be an indignation among the intelligence officers that they should take responsibility for crimes that they were ordered to commit. In a 1997 discussion with the Associated Press about who committed the murder, Peter Castleton said, quote, 
I feel that the senior members of this defense force have to crawl out from under the stones that they're hiding under and start taking the blame, like any other military organization and any other senior officers with any self-esteem or pride would have done a long time ago. It's not just Peter Castleton who felt this way. In a 1996 interview with the Truth and Reconciliation Committee special report, Craig Williamson was asked who in the government knew about his covert operations. Williamson curtly responded to the reporter, quote, I'd like you to ask my superiors, my political superiors, and the political leaders of this country at the time, who knew what I and others were doing. Of course they knew. These are damning words from Craig Williamson. This is probably the part in a conspiracy theory where we get to say, it goes all the way to the top. So if the political leadership of South Africa might have been involved in killing Olaf Palma, and so many high-ranking South African operatives openly admitted to it, why wasn't it ever fully investigated? I think there's a couple reasons for it. One, there wasn't much concrete physical evidence that could even place one of the South African operatives in Sweden when the crime occurred. Here's a few scraps of what does exist. There were some witnesses who claimed to see Craig Williamson in Stockholm at the time of the murder. This could be possible, since he had been involved in funneling Swedish ANC donations to the South African government in the late 70s, and he had some high-level contacts in Sweden. However, Williamson always hired other people to do his killing for him. In any way, he doesn't match any witness description of the killer. There's also some witness testimony that supports a multi-person plot to shoot Olaf Palma. At least five witnesses saw men with walkie-talkies on or near the Sveavagen that night. It's true that walkie-talkies were common among operatives of Sweden's black market in the 1980s. Keep in mind, that was the age before cell phones. But it's also true that the witness in the parked car who got a clear view of the shooting watched the killer take his place at the door of the art store well before Palma arrived, waiting for him. Nobody but Olaf and Lisbeth Palma knew where they were walking that night, so perhaps their position was communicated to the shooter in advance by other people, people with walkie-talkies. This possibility was never investigated by police. It's also possible Eugene de Kock himself was in Sweden that night, though this can't be proven. In 2015, an author in Sweden came forward with closed-circuit TV footage from the Stockholm airport the day after the murder that he claims shows Eugene de Kock boarding a plane. He got the footage from a local TV broadcast in the 80s, and stills from it do show a man who, in profile, looks a lot like Eugene de Kock, wearing a blue overcoat and a flat cap, like the killer did. Unfortunately, it's impossible to say if this really is Eugene de Kock. It's only a few images of bad quality, and either way, why would a trained killer still be wearing the hat that he wore while committing a murder out in public the next day? But it can't just be a lack of hard evidence that prevented a thorough investigation of the South African connection. After all, Swedish police concluded Stieg Engström was the killer, largely based on circumstantial evidence and his suspicious behavior. I think the bigger reason has to do with world politics. Olaf Palma's Sweden 
was in a unique position during the Cold War. It wasn't part of the Warsaw Pact, but it wasn't part of NATO either. And it was an outlier among Western nations in its Prime Minister's support of left-wing governments and movements throughout the world, including Salvador Allende in Chile, Fidel Castro in Cuba, and of course, the ANC in South Africa. In the 1980s, South Africa was struggling to assert itself as a regional power, fighting civil unrest at home and engaging in proxy wars against communist and anti-colonial governments in Angola and Mozambique, or in a full-scale war against an independence movement in Namibia. Southern Africa was essentially a theater in the Cold War, and apartheid propaganda at the time was heavily invested in portraying it as a battle between democracy and the pawns of the Soviet Union. The fact that Sweden, a Western democratic nation itself, was aligned with South Africa's opponents cut into that narrative. But it also aligned Sweden against the United States. Although the Reagan administration's official policy towards South Africa was one of constructive engagement to push the government in Pretoria towards reform, the U.S. shared common enemies with South Africa in Angola and Mozambique, and they remained one of the country's few major trading partners. In fact, a few months after Palma was killed, President Reagan vetoed a bill that imposed sanctions on the apartheid regime, forcing Congress to override it to make it law. Perhaps fully opening up the investigation into South Africa's role in the Palma assassination might uncover some uncomfortable truths about the Cold War. In the 1980s, the apartheid regime knew the end could be near, and it lashed out. Through war, kidnapping, assassination, underground networks of police torture, and even experimental chemical weapons programs, the government in Pretoria did everything it could to inflict terror on the opponents of its racist system, whether those opponents were peaceful or not. And because of who South Africa's enemies were, the government of the United States allowed it to happen. We know that Olaf Palma was one of those opponents of apartheid. And I believe that's what got him murdered. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the Swedish police were correct, and Scandia Man did in fact shoot the Prime Minister all by himself without ever getting caught. But we can't overlook that multiple high-ranking members of the South African government at the time, including generals, colonels, and counselors to the president himself, have either been directly accused of the crime under oath or admitted themselves that their own country was responsible. At this point, I don't think it's a fringe belief to say that apartheid South Africa was likely involved in the shooting of Olaf Palma. Of course, I don't know why Swedish police never fully pursued the South Africa theory. But my guess is it's because of the thorny legal issues over offering amnesty for the crime, or because of the political problems that might arise by revealing a foreign plot to kill Sweden's prime minister. If my hunch is right, and South Africa was involved in the assassination, making that public would likely cause some diplomatic tension. Maybe it would uncover some uncomfortable truths about the people or the governments that collaborated with apartheid South Africa. But the truth should come out. The people of Sweden deserve better than the investigation they got into the death of Olaf Palma, a great man who I believe was killed for his support of a worthy cause.
Sources for this episode include the book Blood on the Snow by Jan Bondesen, as well as the news show Truth and Reconciliation Commission Special Report and various news articles about South Africa that I found. I should also mention that I first got interested in the Olaf Palma assassination after briefly mentioning the case on my previous podcast, Pat Trek. Sophia, who was one of our listeners from Sweden, reached out to us and pointed out some of the very credible alternative theories behind the killing, which is actually what got me down this rabbit hole in the first place. So, thank you to Sophia. This has been the second episode of Conspiracy You Can Believe In. Join me for the next one when we'll cover Chicago Mayor Richard Daly and his possible role in the 1919 race riot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>